Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. What? Oh my goodness. Radiolab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And this is Bio Eats World, our show where we talk about all the ways biology is technology. In this episode, the first we're doing together, Hannah and I talked to physicist Frank Wilczek, who in 2004 won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of asymptotic freedom which helps explain how the subparticles that make up the nucleus of atoms interact and is the basis for much of the work using particle accelerators today. We talk all about Wilczek's new book, Fundamentals, which tells the stories of the foundational lessons of the physical world that have built our understanding of modern physics. In this wide-ranging philosophical conversation, we cover cosmology and complementarity, how radical conservatism, or the idea of pushing every theory to its limit, has driven scientific process, and how the complexity of biology arises from the simplicity of physics. Along the way, we also get the story of the discovery of dark matter and the future of the universe. But most of all, this episode is about how we as humans understand the beautiful, complicated world around us. This book is really about science too, right? The basic evolution of the scientific method and how we interrogate the world around us as humans. Why is that an important thing to do now, to go back to fundamentals? Our fundamental understanding of the world really changed and expanded over the course of the 20th century with the development, especially of quantum theory. And it's become much richer and more accurate and more encompassing, but on the other hand, less familiar. The understanding of the world is new and fresh, Mm -hmm. and you have to learn things and also unlearn things that you thought you understood about how physical reality works. We can expand our minds and just enjoy things that seem fantastic, but actually are rooted in concrete realities, just as sort of an artistic expression of of how of the world around us and an expansion of consciousness. And then for people who are practicing science, if there are new ways of interrogating the world based on what we know, we can ask better questions. We have better means to answer them. So sort of a return to fundamentals at a moment of real expansion. To really appreciate the fundamentals of how the world works as we now understand them, I think you really have to be born again. You have to go through this process of sort of starting from scratch, forgetting things you thought you knew that were sort of based on rules of thumb and realize that the the deeper description, the more accurate description is based on quite different ideas and concepts. 
you start in the 17th century, which is, you know, when the modern approach to understanding the physical world was really kind of formalized. When I've heard that story, the focal point has always been the formalization of the scientific method. But in your telling, there's a second important factor, which you coined as radical conservatism. Yes. Can you tell me about this concept and its impact? To me, that radical conservatism is the real power of what's called the scientific revolution. What it means is that you should formulate precise hypotheses about how things behave and push them as hard as you possibly can to see if they break. And there is a particular group of assumptions that made this powerful, which is that you should look for laws that apply to very small objects and that that have a mathematically precise form. And then if you understand what happens in small parts of space and small parts of time with small numbers of particles, you can build up from there to understand the world in a foundational way. The fundamental understanding, the laws from which in principle everything else can be derived, have this extraordinary form of being reduced to tiny little things and mathematically precise laws. So that was a kind of hypothesis that was conservative, but then gets applied radically because you insist on testing it uh, as hard as you can. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you find small deviations from how the planets move, you worry about it, even if they're very small. So the scientific method is developing a hypothesis, testing a hypothesis, and then, you know, writing your results down and, and putting those into context. And then radical conservatism is taking what you've learned and trying to apply it as broadly as you can to try and see how that explains the world as a property of the larger universe. Well, and it also sounds like almost and trying to break it a little mm -hmm. bit. Exactly. That's right. That's yeah. what makes it radical. So it's conservative in that you don't change your hypotheses, but radical in that you push them beyond where you know they're true and see if they break. If they don't, then you've learned something very important that they have wider applicability. If they do, You've also learned something important. Right, you right, learned right. that you need different equations and different concepts. Can you give us an example of how that worked in action? I'll tell you the story of dark matter. So one of the original forms of dark matter came precisely from this process of radical conservatism. So after Newton developed the framework of classical mechanics and his laws of gravity, people did more and more accurate observations and calculations to implement this uh, this concept of radical conservatism. Mm -hmm. Is this the ultimate law or there are there other things? And if it is the ultimate law, how can we use it to, to describe as many phenomena as possible? This scored success after success, except people observed when they measured very carefully that the planet Uranus was not in the right place. Hmm. It was not obeying the laws. It was a little bit off. So what do you do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So one thing that uh, was attempted was to assume that there was some other kind of matter, some, some, something extra, in this case, another planet that was causing additional gravity that was changing the uh, orbit of Uranus. And the, the astronomers, John Adams and uh, 
the Verrier calculated on the, you know, on the basis of, okay, how much mass and where would I need to explain the motion? And so they predicted that there should be another planet. And sure enough, when they told the astronomers where to look, they found it. Mm. And that's what we call Neptune today. So there was a problem that the consequences of the gravity theory wasn't, weren't right. And so pushing these equations very hard led to a confrontation and a creative hypothesis about how to solve it, which worked out. So in that tiny little mathematical anomaly lay an entire planet basically. <laughs> yes, yes, a, a very large one. Yeah. <laughs> and then there were similar problems with the motion of stars that jiggled, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that led to the discovery of white dwarfs. Today, we have a problem that the stars that are moving in circular orbits around the central galaxy seem to be moving too fast, huh. as if there's more matter. But if there's an extra kind of mass then things could be all right. <laughs> Starts <laughs> to make we sense. Can say some, we can say some broad things about this necessary mass. I think I know what it is. We have clues from completely different parts of physics, fundamental physics, that there should be more particles. So now we're pressing ahead with that radically conservative hypothesis that we fix our equations and then that'll fix the universe. And so we're trying to design appropriate new kinds of antennas that are going to pick up the signal of this new stuff. Wow. This is called axions, by the way. Well, I love that you talk both about this vast, huge size and then also tiny size, right? And, you know, our internal universe as well. Can we talk a little bit about what you were trying to recapture in talking about how we relate to enormous spaces and these tiny spaces at the same time? Well, when you say something is big or say that it's small, you have to say compared to what? Mm -hmm. The natural point of comparison for a human when you say what's big and what's small is a human. From that point of view, in terms of the size of space, we're very small compared to the universe that's revealed to astronomy. I mean, we're very, very, very small. But on the other hand, our brains contain many, many, many neurons, and each neuron is a powerful little information processor. So in that sense, we're very, very large. It can, you know, octillions of neurons. And so we can do very impressive things. And the fact that we're very small compared to the universe is neither here nor there, because as far as this ability to be complicated and process complicated information and have a rich experience. Isn't it marvelous that the world is fantastically large and contains such riches, even though it means that we are relatively small Mm -hmm. because we can be very large in another sense, right? I loved that you referenced that Walt Whitman quote. That's one of my personal favorites. And that's what I'm thinking of now while you're saying this. I contain multitudes. I contain multitudes, right? I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. We're both small and large. And and, uh, I think... Whitman very much felt this, that that we can be very complicated and at the same time the world is enormous and inexhaustible. It's also a story in time. Uh, When we learn about the universe and cosmic history, and it's been around for almost 14 billion years, so much, much longer than a human lifetime. So in that sense, we're tiny in time. But on the other hand, if you ask what is the unit to have a meaningful thought, We construct a world from really from snapshots. 
which is revealed if you take a movie. We can process about 40 frames a second. And if you look at how fast people can play the piano or how fast they can talk, you get similar kinds of measures. And then if you think about that, it means that over a lifetime, we can have many billions of thoughts. And that's a lot. That is a lot, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And especially since uh, there's also parallel processing going on, so you can have several thoughts at once. So in a sense, we also have a lot of time. For me, that's the microbiome. You know, we are, we think of ourselves, you know, if we look out to the, to the, you know, in terms of the entire earth or the, you know, entire universe, we are so small, but we contain this incredible ecosystem within us that both is sustained by us and sustains us. And the generation times of those bacteria are, you know, on the order of 20 minutes. Generations and generations of successions are part of our essential beings. That was the connection I was making to that same kind of smallness and vastness. It it relates to the larger concept of complementarity, which is that you can look at the same thing in different ways, uh, depending on what questions you want to address. So if you want to address how big is a human compared to the universe? Well, not very big. How big is the biosphere compared to the universe? Well, not very big. But if you want to ask, how big is a human compared to uh, what it takes to have a rich experience, to process information in impressive ways? Well, plenty big. And how big is the biosphere to uh, contain not just one, but trillions of other kinds of creatures, uh, it's plenty big. So it's not at all a contradiction to say that something is both big and small. It's, it, it's big if you ask some questions, and it's small if you ask other questions. And, and this is, to me, a very liberating concept, as simple as it is, that the same object, the same situation, can be described in very different ways that are both accurate and both appropriate, but answer different questions. Multiple things can be true at the same time, depending on what you're asking and what you're looking at. Right. And the the ancient Greeks had a lot of trouble with this. They Mm. wrote whole dialogues and (laughs) treatises about the problem of how something can be both big and small. Isn't there an ideal bigness or an ideal? (laughs) So I, I think Modern science, and in particular, complementarity, goes very deep and mm-hmm. gets to the questions that people have been wrestling with for uh, millennia. But how do you know, using this idea of radical conservatism, when you're pushing and pushing and pushing, whether it's just that something is true in another way when you're looking at it? Do you know what I'm saying? It's a truth that you haven't, you're not asking the right question yet? Well, typically, the way that theories are compared with nature, and if we're talking about fundamental theories, is you draw the consequences of the theory you have in some new circumstance, and then you go out and see if the prediction holds true. And if it does, you pat yourself on the back. <laughs> if, if not, then you have a problem. But sometimes... It's more rare these days, but sometimes people just stumble into phenomena that they don't understand at all in fundamental physics. And then then you have to make new, introduce something new. Can you give us an example of that? Well, the laws of physics have this very, we thought, had this very peculiar property that seems unnecessary, 
which is that if you run the fundamental equations backwards in time, you get exactly the same equations. So if you take a movie of the world and then run it the wrong way, what you see still obeys the laws of physics. Wow. That looks very strange from the point of view of macroscopic objects. Everyday experience doesn't look that way. But if you really focus on atomic level events, or if you look at very pure situations like the solar system, if the planets were moving in the opposite direction, it would just be just fine. It would still obey the laws. And the atoms, if you run the pick backwards, it looks exactly the same. So in, in our fundamental equation, they always had this feature, which is kind of an embarrassment, actually, because if you think of science is meant to be just a, an ex, a description of experience, mm -hmm. this is kind of in the wrong direction. We have these, this funny, funny, strange property of the laws that you have to explain away to get to experience. But people know how to do that. They talk about entropy and things getting more probable. But the question of why God or nature hmm. chose to use this strange principle that the laws should look the same with the opposite direction of time, that was very mysterious. We can explain why it got messy in the middle there, but not why it behaves that way in the pure at either spectrum. All right. Now, it could have been that that was just the final word. It's a nice idea that, okay, time can go forwards or backwards. <laughs> that would be a nice story. And maybe you just can't go any deeper. You know, if you interact with a child and they keep asking why, 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 at some point you just have to say, well, that's the way it is. This became a very fruitful question. And as we developed our understanding of uh, fundamental interactions, especially in the 1970s in describing matter with what's now called the standard model, we could address that question intelligently and almost answer it. There are two Japanese physicists, Kobayashi and Maskawa, who showed that it's kind of an accidental consequence of other deep principles of relativity and quantum mechanics. Of course, you can't run things backwards in time, but what you can do is take what were the products and use them as the uh, initiators and look for the products emerging from the initiators instead of the initiators looking for the products. And there's a very precise relationship that holds between those things if this symmetry of time running backwards is correct, almost, but not quite. It didn't quite work. In 1964, in looking at an obscure corner of uh, the properties of very unstable particles that you can only produce at accelerators, K-mesons, Val Fitch and Jim Cronin discovered a tiny phenomenon mm. experimentally that violated this principle. To make it work, you have to make the theory a little bit bigger. And when you make the theory a little bit bigger, you get these axions. And then the axions turn out to have just the right properties to make the dark matter. Wow. So that's where we are. Fundamental physics suggests that there should be these things, and then the astronomers may have already observed it. Is that where we are today in our understanding of the nature of, of time, the complexity of our understanding of it? I know that's a huge question. Well, this particular question, I think we're very close to an answer that it's really a consequence of deeper things, uh, basically relativity and quantum mechanics, 
you know, that are worthy principles <laughs> as opposed to being kind of this funny principle that you should have almost but not quite exact symmetry if you change the direction of time. So the axions in this case are almost like the Neptune of that previous example where exactly. the presence of the, yeah. ax- if you account for the presence of the axions, they explain this fundamental principle of the universe that we hadn't previously understood, just like we didn't understand the orbit of Uranus until we had discovered that Neptune was just beyond it. Right. But this would both address a fundamental problem in physics, this time reversal thing, and also supply the dark matter. If you have this new particle and run it through the equations of the Big Bang to see how much it's produced and then how it disperses itself in the universe, it seems to have just the right properties too. Amazing. Yeah. So it's exciting. It might, it might be entirely wrong, but even if it's wrong, it's interesting. It's interesting to know that it's wrong. You know, the sci-fi thing that comes to mind is it makes you wonder if time is reversible, right? It's very nearly reversible. It's very nearly reversible at a mm. fundamental level. The small deviations have basically only very obscure consequences in studying unstable particles. And and if you only if you study them very, very accurately. So for practical purposes, I think, it's pretty darn reversible, yeah. The other part of that story that I really liked was the quote from Val Fitch that yesterday's sensation is today's calibration and tomorrow's background. And I think that yes. really speaks to kind of the, the process <laughs> of science, that something is, you know, so out of this world when we first discover it. And then it's something that becomes accounted for in all of your follow-on scientific work. And then it's like a note in the background. Yeah, yeah I've had that experience with, quantum chromodynamics, the thing I got the Nobel Prize for, when we first were developing it, it was really exciting to see whether it was true. And at all the big international conferences, there were sessions on testing quantum chromodynamics. It was a little bit nerve wracking because the tests were coming in and it wasn't completely clear at first that it was going to be correct. But now, after mountains of evidence, people just regard it as established and use it to calculate backgrounds. I guess the general thing is that better answers lead to better questions. I love that. So knowing that this phenomenon that Cronin and Fitch discovered was there led us to ask much better questions about fundamental interaction. You know, you might have said that the original thing they discovered was really obscure. It's a very small effect. But because it led to new questions, now maybe it's the key to most of the mass wow. in the universe. <laughs> I, love, I think, <laughs> that, Lauren, I yeah. think that should be the new tagline for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you're talking about your experience with quantum chromodynamics, which is yeah. the, you know, the discovery of the forces that hold the nucleus together. Because a nucleus is formed of protons, which all have a positive charge. Right. If you didn't have this extra force that you discovered, the strong force, they would you would expect them to just blow apart. You mentioned this discovery. This was a thought experiment. This is something that you use theory to explain. And then people tested it. And they did that by developing new technology. And so I'm curious to hear you talk more about this evolution of you know scientific thought into the development of technology into this better answers lead to better questions. Yeah. So I have to correct you. I didn't, I didn't discover the strong force by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) People knew that they needed an extra force in order to hold atomic nuclei together, as you say, but there were no equations for this force. We have beautiful equations for gravity. We had beautiful equations for electromagnetism. This was just something that was known 
as a fact of nature that we needed an extra force, but what the equations were was uh, totally obscure and, and really, in many ways, dominated the agenda of fundamental physics for a big part of the 20th century, basically from the 1930s to the 1970s. And that's when we broke through and then, then uh, follow-up work. There were many experiments done to uh, elucidate what this force might be. If, you know, it's, it's much more difficult to do experiments to probe what's going on inside atomic nuclei or inside protons than it is to do experiments to, to study electricity, say. It's image processing on steroids to see what was going on inside nuclei and inside protons. And that enabled us to make a guess based on quite indirect clues for what the equations were. And we didn't know how to solve these equations in any systematic way, but there were little things we could use them for to make predictions. And so those got tested, and it works. It's very similar in spirit to what happened with Newton's theory of gravity. People learned and developed methods to calculate more accurately and do more accurate experiments to continue to test the theory harder and harder. Now, knowing that, people could design new kinds of experiments to look for new phenomena, because once you have a certain set of phenomena under control, you can look for small anomalies that are beyond it. Once you know about Neptune, maybe there are other planets, or maybe there's dark matter of another kind in the universe. So we press ahead, and the fact that we understand the strong interaction allows us to understand what goes on at high energy accelerators much better so that we can look for smaller effects that are maybe not understood. It also opens up the early universe because during the the early moments of the Big Bang, which are, of course, it's crucial for what comes out of it, things were very close together, very hot, very energetic, and the strong interaction was the dominant force. So understanding the strong interaction is absolutely necessary if you're going to understand the early universe has opened up cosmology in a big way. I wanted to ask you about your work on the beginning of the universe. And I love that we're talking about this sort of symmetry and reversal of time, because it leads me to where I wanted to ask you to speculate a little bit on, you know, given your work on what you know about the beginning of the universe, (laughs) how do you think it ends? Well, we understand a lot. But I'm not sure we understand enough to answer that question in a convincing way. But let me, let me give you a spiel about it, because I have thought about it. So our current understanding is that the future of the universe is kind of bleak, because in the spirit of radical conservatism, uh, it's going to keep expanding and, in fact, expanding faster and faster. So it'll get more and more empty. Eventually, the night sky will have stars, but no more Mm. galaxies. And the stars will be getting older and burn out. So you'll have much less light and it'll all go dark. That's the um, picture of the future that emerges if you take our current understanding as it is. Now, there are two pieces Mm -hmm. of good news. One is that the answer scientists would have given 100 years ago has nothing in common with the answer. <laughs> That's the consensus today. <laughs> so it may totally change. Uh, yeah, there are billions of years where things can get rewritten and, and our understanding can change. And so uh, it's not firmly rooted, to say the least. 
The second thing is that technology is also improving rapidly. Certainly on the scale of billions of years, we can expect that there'll be totally new kinds of ways of controlling the universe and controlling matter. I think it's not at all implausible, let alone impossible, that people or future future evolution of humans will be able to make use of the universe in creative ways to keep the complexity, to keep the interest going, to keep the information processing going, even though things are getting dark gradually. Mm -hmm. And there certainly are technologies I can envision that will enable things to go on for tens, hundreds of billions of years. And there may be technologies that can keep it going indefinitely. That's what I like to think. It's it's much more comforting than just thinking the sky is going to go black and the lights go off. <laughs> yeah, but it's another it's it's very much like this question of oh isn't it isn't it depressing that the universe is so big and we're so small or that the universe is so old and we we live only a short time. It can be true simultaneously that the universe is getting even bigger, yeah. mm-hmm. and yet we can be getting more complex mm-hmm. at the same time. And, and the density of experience and the depth of experience can be evolving in a positive way, even, though, even as the, the sort of external world is evolving in a different way. You know, one of the big themes of your books is the ways that the universe and our understanding of the universe can be distilled down into these very conserved ideas. So space, time, fields and energy, and then these laws that govern them. And you, and you say that the, the laws that govern the interactions could be, you know, written as a computer code that would be so much shorter than the code that's running these computers that we're using yes, right now. Yes. It would be much more compact and works better than Word, <laughs> for instance. I would love to hear you talk about how does biological complexity arise from such simplicity? Because, you know, yeah. I, as a biologist, I can't boil anything <laughs> down. The, the, you know, it's it, whenever we're learning about right. biology, it's another layer of complexity, another layer of interaction, another layer of um, regulation. Yes. I would love to hear you talk about how complexity arises from this simplicity. Yes. So to me, when you understand the fundamental laws, that's not the end of science. That's in many ways the end of the beginning, because then we have the job of using the laws to understand bigger things. You know, how, do they, how do many, many simple objects work together to make complicated objects? There's no contradiction between the idea that's the, that you have simplicity at a most basic level and yet complexity in, at an observed level, we know even from experience with Legos <laughs> that you can make very complicated things from simple building blocks. And in fact, having simple building blocks that work together according to definite rules is really helpful in making something complicated because you can, you can make it stable, you can interchange parts, you can, you can take modules and as evolution does, use them with small changes to build on. So, I think we can understand in broad terms how the basic laws support lots of complexity. You can make complicated things and you can also make complicated things that change in time and do things and evolve. So sort of dynamic complexity is really the key to the universe. Now, there's a phrase in the book that I was very proud of, which is physicists tell us what's conceivable, chemists tell us what's possible, 
and biologists tell us what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I can talk in a very general way about very broad principles of how our fundamental laws enable you to conceive of dynamical complexity. But understanding how it is actually possible in terms of concrete molecules and materials and so forth, that's a hard job. And then understanding what actually happened is, a, is an even harder job. I don't subscribe to the uh, snobbery that uh, understanding the fundamental laws is the most important thing or the mm. only thing. As I said, it's the, it's the end of the beginning in understanding how the world works. Right? It's a, another example of complementarity. It's thinking that nature is both simple and complex. Yes. And neither one needs to be proven false to make the other one true, that they can just, we can hold both facts in our hands yes. at the same time. And if we understand fundamentals, then we can sort of build on that without having to look under the hood anymore. At the beginning, the way you discussed sort of why this is the moment where we should be revisiting these fundamental principles, that there's a message to be spread, it almost sounded like gospel to me a little bit. You say that by studying the physical world, we kind of have an ability to learn what God, quote unquote, or what we understand to be God is. Yes. What is the relationship of science to religion, to philosophy in that regard? Well, let me answer that in two ways. There is a large class of questions which science can address about how the world works. But there's, there are other questions about, like, what should we do? What's good? What's bad in terms of morality or ethics? Or how should we treat other people? There are lots of other questions that are not really amenable to science as usually understood. I mean, science can certainly give you uh, guidance as to what laws will lead to certain consequences, but it can't tell you what the goal of life is or its meaning. So you need other ways of addressing those questions. The other thing is that, to me, if you want to ask about ultimate reality, you should consult physical reality, not primarily or only old texts that have somehow gotten authority by convention. To me, the most convincing way to learn about God or the meaning of the universe, see what he or she or it or they have made, you know, and what is there. To me, by understanding the world, you're understanding what God is. And that may be something very surprising. One thing that I relate to in the tradition of Spinoza and Einstein, people like Newton and Maxwell, is that there's no contradiction. And the surefire way to learn about God is to study his works. So learning about the laws is revealing the nature of reality. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. I certainly enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio Newsletter at a16z.com slash newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.